The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, we have a very special guest. We're joined by one of the most legendary record producers of all time. Tony Brown is joining us, and among other things, we're going to talk about his new coffee table book entitled Elvis Straight to Jesus. The book is a photographic journey of his 40-year career. It's got historical, never-before-seen pictures and contemporary portraits of many rock, country, and gospel music icons, all of which Tony Brown produced. Tony Brown has produced hundreds of number one songs. Some of his many titles include being the co-founder of Universal South Records, the former president of MCA Records Nashville, and Tony Brown has produced hits for George Strait, Reba McIntyre, Vince Gill. He's also worked with everyone from Jimmy Buffett and Lionel Richie to Barbara Streisand. Tony Brown's career is credited with over 100 number one singles, record sales exceeding 100 million units. He's also signed many legendary artists to record deals, People like Trisha Yearwood, Patti Loveless, Marty Stewart, Rodney Crowell, Joe Eli, Kelly Willis, Todd Snyder, Allison Moore, The Mavericks, Shooter Jennings. We could keep on going. It's a great honor to welcome Tony Brown, and as the title of the book says, Elvis Straight to Jesus. Tony Brown's family and his background is steeped in gospel music, which is one of the things that led him to being a piano player for Elvis Presley. So, Tony Brown... What did your gospel background give you? I think it gave me that real heartfelt, soulful feeling that I think a lot of black artists like Whitney Houston acquiesce to the church, you know. It's like R&B is really soulful. And, and of course, I was raised in Baptist churches which had some of the worst music I've ever heard that was out of tune, you know, singing all those hymns. Like, it didn't matter if you could sing in tune, you just sang in the choir. And then as we would, my dad was an evangelist, and we'd go to Pentecostal churches, which Elvis was an assembly of God. And, you know, most people today don't know the layers. Like in, in Baptists, there's Southern Baptists, and there's Hardshell Baptists, and then there's just Baptists. And in the Pentecostal, there's assembly of God, church of God, church of the living God, Nazarene, and then you get into the really Pentecostal like uh, holiness churches where they speak in tongues and throw babies in the air and stuff like that. And we, my dad, we would play all kinds of churches, even black churches. And I, it really, like I think Whitney Houston always talks about, what is that family, that black family that lives here in Nashville? I can't think of their names, but she always represents them, you know, because they were like almost like a contemporary Christian version of soul music, like Aretha, Aretha with a a new modern spin to it. What is that family that sings here? I can't think of their names. But anyway, I, I think it just it made me realize how you can music can really tear your heart out, you know. I mean, Elvis, when he was singing some of those songs like, uh, when he sang I Great the Art, it was like a different thing than when people in gospel music sang it. He sang it like it was a soulful song, you know, like a soul song. And when George Beverly, George Beverly Shea sang it, which is the first record I ever bought, was George Beverly Shea singing How Great the Art, because my dad wouldn't let me listen to any pop music. So I never, I never really was into Elvis until I got with him. I just thought of him as a celebrity, not the, not the king of rock and roll. You know, as I've gotten older, I am really diving into all these documentaries that are out, like uh, about David Giffen, about Glenn Johns and Eric Martin, and the thing that Iveen and Dr. Dre had out called the uh, Defiant Ones. You know, just learning about the history of what made everything, what made hip hop hip hop, <laughs> in traditional country. To George Strait, everybody thinks George Strait is a t- traditional artist. He's not. He's really a hybrid form of traditional music. He pulled from Haggard and uh, Ferlin Husky and all those kind of guys, but he was really like Alan Jackson. He was more of a hybrid form, modern form of that. And so I, I don't know. I find myself studying studying music more today 
as I'm sort of at near the peak of my career and uh, look back on it, because it's such a young man's world right now. A lot of pluggers that used to plug songs to me for George Strait, Michael Knox is producing Jason Aldean. <laughs> and then uh, Jeff Stevens, who wrote all those big hits for George that I produced called Caring Your Love With Me, Carried Away, True. I used to just, he would cut demos and they were so perfect. You know, the intro, every part, every instrumental part. I would just copy his demos for the most part. And then when he started producing Luke Bryan, I was going, I knew he was a producer back in those days. He just had that way of knowing how to make the intro a hook and the chorus a hook and all that kind of stuff. I find myself very kind of analyzing music these days and looking back on it. How do you know when you want to work with an artist? Man, that's a good question. You know, it's got to be, I've got to like it for one thing. I mean, in the beginning, I left RCA to go to MCA with Jimmy Bowen because RCA wouldn't let me produce anything because I didn't have a track record. And so I said, well, how do you get a track record if you don't get an opportunity? And so Nora Wilson, who was the head of A&R at the time I was there, he let me co-produce a song on Steve Warner that went number one. And I don't even think I charged to do it. I just would have paid to do it just to be on a record. And so when I went to uh, MCA in 84, Jimmy Bowen came to town and he was puzzled that all the record companies were run by people who were like accountants and as they call them, suits. And so Bowen was a, he's a producer. He came to town as a producer and uh, he wanted an A in our department that was the face of the label. And, and so he hired me from from uh, RCA because I had signed Alabama. And so I had, as an A&R person, I had a, like a little a little thing there that was big for me. That made, that made me like a good A&R guy. Because I, when I signed them, I didn't even know they were that good. I had no idea they'd become the biggest act in the business. I just started paying attention. You know, the best way to... to to make it in the in this industry is just to pay attention, and um, so I just started paying attention. I was just so absorbed in songwriters. When I first got into business, I thought musicians were the stars because I wasn't even into country music that much because I was raised in gospel. And then when I before I got with RCA, I had just finished playing with Amy Lou Harris, who had just cut that first album, which was kind of a a springing a springboard from country rock back in over in the west coast like the birds and the eagles and the poco and all those kind of things and i liked that but that was considered kind of pop music in nashville and riding on the bus with amy lou i learned more about country music than i ever would have learned from anybody in town because she was a big fan of bluegrass and a big fan of real hillbilly music and mountain music so I just I I had big wide eyes and I paid attention to every aspect of the business, and so when I started, I got with Bowen. He let me start signing acts. He said, he said, okay, I'm gonna produce all the stars on the label. I want you to go out and find me something that you like and bring it to me. So the first thing I brought to him was Patty Loveless, and he thought she was too much of a hillbilly. And I just, I thought her voice was like just so real, so authentic. Then I found out she was like a distant cousin of Loretta Lynn. And I signed her just off of my instinct, just thinking, God, this is really good. And boy, it took about two or three years for the label to get turned on to her. I had to like fight for her. You know, I found out how much I really loved her because I had to like stand up for her when nobody else would. And so I... It's an instinct thing. I, I first was turned on to people, singer-songwriters, I think, first, because being around Rodney Crowell when I was playing in, 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 um, with Amy Lou and being around those kind of songwriters, uh, I was attracted to singer-songwriters. That's why I, some of my first signings were Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett. I thought Steve Earle was the next Waylon and the press that he was the next Mellencamp Springsteen. And, and that's, really what he, that's really what he was. He wasn't the next Waylon, but he was the only person that had that kind of stubbornness that Waylon had. You know, Waylon would only use his band and the records were real sloppy, according to Jerry Bradley, my boss. But Waylon stood by his guns and, and you know, he, he's, 
he's one of the biggest, most important figures in country music. Johnny Cash. I mean, I look back on the people that are icons like Cash, Waylon, Loretta. They were really raw. You know, Patsy Cline was pretty slick. Owen Bradley, when he cut Walking After Midnight with the strings and everything, that became called that became the style called country politan or something like that. Because he used strings, you know, that's a no-no. But then back in those days, there weren't country charts, R&B charts. There was just pop charts and pops that were popular. Not a, pop is not a it's not a genre of music. <laughs> pop usually pretty much leans more toward rock and uh, adult contemporary and sort of or you know folky. Just more anything but a real hard R and B or a real hard country. And then when a record crossed over like Ronnie Millsap or Dolly Parton, they became crossover records. And then when Sounds Scan came out in like 19, when it did 86 maybe? And then, because up to that point, the charts were not based on sales. All of a sudden, the top five records in the Billboard chart on the pop chart were Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Vince Gill. And everybody went, wow, I had no idea. And... Then they then they called it mainstream music. So you know, I just I got into Jimmy Bowen. Let me sort of run free. You know, he just he's basically when you look at his uh, discography. You know, he, he co-produced the uh, Kenny Rogers in the first edition, and then he did Sinatra. He did Dean Martin, and he was part of that whole the L.A. legacy, the Brat Pack kind of guys. You know, but he'd been studying Nashville. And was going, man, they need help over there because they're cutting songs. And so he moved here to help. In his mind, he moved here to help out Nashville. And believe it or not, he did. But everybody in town hated his guts because they thought he was a, a sleazy carpetbagger. <laughs> he did, you know. And, and, and even when I went to work for him, all my friends said, why are you doing that? I said, because he, he offered me like... Joe Galani offered me to stay at RCA making $30,000 a year as a manager of A&R, and Bowen offered me a VP of A&R and 100 grand a year in a black Cadillac. <laughs> and, he said, and, and he guaranteed me, he said, I'll let you, I know you want to be a producer, so I'll let you co-produce three records immediately with me. Jimmy Buffett and uh, Steve Warner. And, and that was a big deal for me, you know. Jimmy Buffett, man, I'd already known he was like starting to break open because Margaritaville had already come out and I, I felt like I was in in the game and then he said go find me some stuff that you like and so I found Steve Earle and, and Patty and Lyle Lovett and he fought me on that but it, he uh, fought me to see if I'd fight back and I did I just you know I started going man I, when I like something I really like it and I stand up for it and I, word got around town that I was a maverick. I wasn't a maverick. I was just, <laughs> I just thought I should speak up, you know. The records that really defined my breakout was records that, that did not sell lots of records, like Patty and Steve and Lyle. Although eventually we did have a gold record on Lyle and two gold records on Lyle and one on Steve. But they were like a break from tradition. And um, so to see, when I see an artist, I don't know. I saw Trisha Yearwood at Douglas Corner, and it was when they, everybody was doing showcases, like in 86, 87. And every A&R person was there. And she sang, she's in love with the boy in the, at the showcase. <laughs> and, and at the time, I was A&R looking for songs for Reba, for, for, for Bowen, you know, for him to cut on Reba. And so I would get all these demos. Every chick demo was her singing them. And and then I was going, oh, that's that girl that sings all those demos. She's really good. And so I, after the showcase, I said, hey, if you, can you get that song you did? She's in love with the boy. She said, yeah, Garth Sundas got it for me to cut. He's going to shop a deal with it. And I said, you got a deal right now. And we walked out, and the girl from RCA said, I can't believe you offered her a deal on one song. I'd have to hear something on on tape to see what she sounds like. I said, Mary? Go look in your drawer. Every every song that's pitched to a chick on RCA is her. And if it's not her, it's usually Gretchen Wilson or Kathy Mateo. 
And so, you know, I'd already heard Trisha. And, and that night, man, she just, I mean, she thinks she's in love with the boy. I was smart enough to know, and that was early in my career, that that was the number one song. It was her first single, and, man, she went blasting through the stratosphere after that. We're talking with Tony Brown. You mentioned the name Jimmy Bowen. Now, that's a producer. His name has come up a few times. What would you say it was that Jimmy Bowen taught you? Well, when I first, I learned that he had, he believed in himself. He was a bit of a narcissist, but he just was, he was just really confident because he had done so many big things, you know. And he had, he had, have you ever met Jimmy Bowen? I never have. Yeah, well, he, he, he changed my life. I mean, he really did because when he hired me and made me a VP, it was a stepping out because when he was hiring me, everybody in town, you know, back in those days, in 84, when a record label president changed hands, because back then it was, I can't think you ran uh, Warner Brothers, but it was Columbia back in those days. Rick, what's his name? Uh, I can't, anyway, when somebody left, Jerry Bradley ran RCA. When somebody left the label to go to another label, it was like they're taking over. <laughs> and the word started spreading around town when I was at RCA. Said Jimmy Bowen's taking over MCA. He was at he was at Warner Brothers. He'd come into town at, at Warner Brothers through Electra, and then they got rid of uh, whoever was running the label at the time, and put Bowen in charge. And, and then Bowen took Hank Jr. and made him like the biggest star in country music. And all of a sudden, Warner Brothers was a really player. And so, and he started flying in musicians from L.A. to play on the records, and other musicians in town thought that was like flying a whore in Las Vegas, right? <laughs> but when I, got, when I got with Bowen, he would say, he called me T. Hey, T, people, people think that I'm a carpetbagger, and they think that I'm just trying to be too L.A. He's the first one to start having food catered to the studio between sessions because sessions were usually two a day, 10 to 2, break for an hour, union break, and then 2 to 6. And everybody said he was being L.A. And, and so Bowen said, I'm not doing that to be L.A. I'm just doing that to keep the musicians in the studio because when I got here, all the players would go on the break out to eat and get drunk and come back and kill my session. <laughs> so I just kept them in. I kept them in the studio and fed them. And I thought, well, that makes sense. And and Bowen taught me a lot about time management. You know, he he was doing like twelve records at a time. And I was wondering. Everybody would say, "How can he do that?" And so I was his his A and R guy. So I said, "How do you do that?" He said, "Well, here's here's the way it goes, T. You got to be there for tracks." You got to be there when you cut the track so you can say that's the one, and then you got to comp together the vocal, the lead vocal, so that it's the final vocal and get it approved by the artist. You got to be there for that. But you can pick the parts of the different takes they did and mark it out for an engineer. Then you go home and they can put it together, and then you can come back in the next day and and smooth it out and make it perfect. He said you don't have to be there all night long, but me. In the beginning, I, I was there for everything. I just wanted to be there to see how it was all done. I stayed and comped it myself with engineers till 3 or 4 in the morning. And um, then he said, you don't need to be there for the backgrounds, but if you like doing that sort of thing, do it. And I, I did that. He said, and when you mix it, leave it with your engineer. And get, let him know what you want as you're cutting the record, and you can leave it with him all day long. Come check in about 5 or 6 o'clock, and he'll have it where he thinks it's done, and you can say, no, let's pan the still over to the left and not the right. Uh, let's put a little more delay on that guitar, pull the backgrounds down, and then tell him to stay there and do that. Then you'll come back the next morning at 10 o'clock, and you can close it. And then just do that over and over and over. So you can be working. You can be comping while your engineer is putting the comp together. And I was going, everybody thinks he's, thinks he's full of it, but he was dead serious about stuff. And he said, if you want, if you want Dean Park, the guitar player from L.A., he's like the, the main acoustic player and electric player in L.A., if you want Dean Parks to play on one song, fly him in. You'll get a bunch of shit for it, but fly him in. <laughs> it's worth it. I mean, it's an airplane ticket, 
uh, it's worth what five hundred bucks, maybe a rent a car. And it makes and that guitar part makes the song a hit. And lots of times, the intro by the guitar or the solo by the guitar, like Don Felder's solo on Hotel California, that was worth it all, right? Yeah. You know, he said so. If it's, if you know it's worth it, do it because that shows you got you got courage and you got taste. Because it was a long time before I had the guts to fly in Russ Kunkel and Leland Sklar to play on a record with Reba. But man, it made a big difference, and all the players on in the room never get a chance to play with Leland Scar and Russ Conkel. You know who they are, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd heard of all those James Taylor records and stuff, and so and I was just mesmerized that they were in my session. But I started learning. Just casting became a big deal, and that's what Bowen did. He cast the, the, the players. You know, I would cast the Muscle Shoals guy to play the B three, and then he taught me all how to do all that kind of stuff. And then he always said, listen to your artists. It's their record, not your record. They may be wrong, but give them a chance. If somebody's going to hang them, let them hang themselves. You don't hang them. <laughs> and so I, I, just, I did things that I believed in. He taught me, but then I didn't do the things I didn't believe in. Like one time he told me, he said, he had so much verb on this uh, George Strait record that he was producing. And uh, I said, God, that's just way too much verb for me. And here was his comeback. He says, T, you know, they just saw George Strait at the Coliseum last night, and those Coliseums, it just roars around. When they buy the record, they want it to sound like that. And I was thinking to myself, no, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) So the first record I got to produce on George was Pure Country. Bowen said, don't use use the B3 Straight doesn't like B3 on his records. Now I always used to B3 because I'd studied Chip's moment. I, you know, I study producers to this day. I mean, I just, I'm really a kind of uh, drawn into what's going on right now in pop music and country music. There's just all these people are, there's not many guitars on the records, usually a loop instead of a drummer. It's really just a layer behind the artist. And, you know, like a lot of my Reba records, like Fancy, well, that was a big, we tried to get get the same vibe that uh, who had Ode to Billy Joe, Bobby Gentry, had on the original record. And that was pretty hard to accomplish that. You know, it's hard to copy something that happened naturally back in those days, but we got pretty damn close. And it never was a number one record for Reba, but it's the biggest hit she ever had. If you go see Reba and she doesn't do Fancy, you're going to be really upset. So I, I just started gleaning things from Bowen because, you know, some of those records like going back to Houston on Dean Martin and My Way on Sinatra, I mean, you got you got to look at that and go, man, I wonder if I'll ever be, ever be able to do that. And then you just realize one person can, can uh, kill a session, you know, so casting is really important. And you got to, and it's like somebody said, how do you get to be a producer? And I said, get the label to trust you with the budget. <laughs> and because uh, I, I remember there was a guy that was producing uh, Greg Brown produced Travis Tritt and they pulled him off and when they pulled him off Tritt quit having hits and I said wonder why Warner Brothers pulled Greg off those Travis records they said he always went over budget <laughs> and and I was going I'm going to go talk to Bowen about that and Bowen said I would just hammer him, but man, that was a dumbest thing, you know. He 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 knew how to go where to go with Tritt, and after Tritt lost him, the magic went away. It's like Pete Anderson with Dwight Yoakam in the beginning, you know. Pete produced those records and played guitar, and when Pete left Dwight, Dwight's still an icon, I and mean, he'll always be one. But he never quite reached that little spot that he and Pete had going. So I I, I learned how to go to that sweet spot for every artist. When I took over George, I mean, I wasn't trying to change him. Bowen got him from Blake Nevis, who cut those early records like Amarillo by Morning and all that stuff. And Bowen's first record, I think, was uh, was California. God, I can't think of the title. But anyway, he just started changing the, the way the record sounded, a little more verb and his opinion of how what the kick drums just sound like, you know, he he would sample a kick he liked, and he started doing this, some of those new techniques that all the new producers were doing. 
So when I got George, I just was going to copy what Boeing was doing because Boeing kind of copied what Blake Nevis was doing. You know, there's certain kind of intros and stuff that George has always had that sound like a George Strait intro, just like Reba has a bunch of things that that you always could put on a, one of her records because it sounded like a Reba record. And uh, so I took, when I got through your country, you know, it was a different record for George because it was for a movie. And then uh, Warner Pictures sent in a guy from the West Coast at the movie company to uh, to sort of watch me, you know. And uh, that first song, Pure Country, at first, it was called, uh, no, the first song was called uh, Heartland, right? Yeah. It was the first big, yeah, single, big hit. Well, it was first written called Pure Country, and it was written about cornbread and and all that kind of stuff, hay bales and stuff. And and I I spoke up, not knowing I shouldn't. And and the, the writers went and rewrote it and called it Heartland, and it was a, it was a big hit. And I had put Brent Rowan, who's played on like ninety percent of all the hit records in Nashville, for the the guitar solo in the middle, right? And he played that solo that probably 10 years or any other artist would have used. The guy from Warner's Pictures took it back to L.A. and put Dean Parks on there without me even being there. And that's the solo you hear. If you see the video, if you see the video on CMT, they got the copy of the single before we finished the album, and it has Brent Rowan on it. And then you buy the album that's got Dean Parks on it. You know, I just started learning about all those kind of things. It fascinated me. <laughs> and and for Dean Parks, it was like a rock solo. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like a chicken-picking kind of twangy solo like Brent played. And that's what George has always had. But George, didn't, he, you know, he didn't say a word. He, he went with it. And then I did have B3 on that album. And George says, now what is that again? I said, it's the B3. He says, I like that. <laughs> And, you know, I I really started learning to believe in myself when certain little little things like that happened. I just started believing in myself. But I've never really tried to change George. I, I think that the reason George has had 60 number ones, and by the way, I did 37 of those, is because he didn't try to push the envelope. He just found great songs, man. I mean, the best of the best. I mean, I used to listen to thousands of songs before we'd go in the studio. And then he'd come in and sing them, and he knew them. You know, he he came in to sing. And I, I never thought about George being a great singer, but people always compared him to Sinatra. He's a country music Sinatra. And I thought, well, I've never thought about Sinatra being a great singer. But then I started analyzing it, and I was going, oh, I get it. When they sing, it's like conversation. You know, Sinatra, he's not like a scatter, you know, like Chris Stapleton or what's a good pop singer back in those days. He just, when he sings, it's like he's just, it falls out of his mouth like it's second nature. And George is the same way. He's like, it's like every man's voice is George Strait. You know, since then I've worked with Ronnie Dunn and Vince Gill, who are two of the greatest singers in the world, and Trisha Yearwood and Reba, two of the best female singers, and why not? So I, I know what good singers are. I mean, I listen to pop music and the Julius Steinfields and the, I mean, Julie Michaels and the Haley Steinfields, and a lot of those are, they are just the sound, the voice that's, they all sort of sound alike, and it, and it works, you know, because everybody likes the same, it seems, anyway. Because <laughs> right now in country, all this bro country thing is happening, which I can't relate to, because I loved, I loved when Buck represented Bakersfield and Haggard, and then, uh, like, Allen represents Georgia, you know, I mean, he's, East Coast, South country music like Allen is different than George Strait's Texas style. And once you start knowing that, you start, oh, I get it, you know. And Memphis, R&B is different than Detroit. <laughs> I don't know, I, I became like a, in the school, because I, I can't read music, but I have been so blessed. I mean, I was Elvis's last piano player, and I got that job because I played with J.D. Zoner. <laughs> I was not, not because I was a fabulous piano player. But uh, Elvis had heard me play with J.D. Sumner, so when Glenn D. Harden quit to go tour with Amy Lou Harris, I got that job. Like, it's sort of the right place, right time. And then Elvis dies, and Glenn D. leaves Amy Lou to go play with John Denver. Amy Lou hires me because I had I played like Glenn D. 
I just kept my eyes open and going, oh, this is how it works, sliding doors. And you just always make sure whatever you do, do your best at it. Uh, when uh, A&M cut a, a tribute record to Leonard Cohen, Billy Joel came to Nashville. He wanted to cut his song with the guy that produced Guitar Town. And I was going, well, that's bizarre. And then I played, I cut, I recorded one song on Barbara Streisand, an album that David Foster had started. It was a love song album. She wanted to cut a song that James Brolin had played on their first date. It was a George Strait song. It was a song written like kind of like a cabaret kind of swing, Vegasy thing, you know. So I could hear her doing that, and so. I I get a call to come out to produce that. I think it's, I'm being punked, but it's for real. So I take I take Paul Franklin, the steel player, with me, and I take Stuart Duncan, the fiddle player that plays on all of George's records. He's like in the best, a really good bluegrass band. And I went out there, and everybody told me what a bee she was going to be. And she would, she was so sweet to me, man. I mean, and she would say, "Hey, turn up." Turn up that, that thing over there. He's playing. It was Paul Franklin on the steel. And uh, she said, I want more, more of that in my headphones. And Paul Franklin said, thank you, Barbara, because in Nashville, they always say, take the damn steel out of my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was out there going, man, I'm almost, I felt like I was almost experiencing the Peter principle, which is when you rise to the level of your incompetence, right? <laughs> but, you know, it went off really good. And as I was leaving the studio, I was telling the engineer and some of the musicians, I said, man, she was so sweet. And they said, it's probably because you're from Nashville. I was going, I was like me, because I'm like a simple person. <laughs> I said, no, I think it's because I was nice to her. But anyway, I, I was so, I would have never in a million years believed I would have ever done that. And I wasn't scared because after working with Bowen, you know, I just had learned how to get the scared demon out of my body because he could eat your lunch spit you out but uh i really i he really changed my life in a lot of ways and he, he was a in my I, I got a coffee table book coming out called elvis straight to jesus and uh, i have everybody sitting i sort of go through intervals in my life and i have this french renaissance chair i put a person in like uh my piano teacher, then my J.D. Sumner's nephew. J.D.'s passed away, so I put his nephew in the chair because it represents the Elvis years and the gospel years. And then as I got forward, I, I put Glenn D. Harden. I, I, I thought I didn't put Glenn D. Harden in there. I, I like, followed him twice in big gigs that changed my life. You know, because when I got with Amy Lou, she got pregnant and quit playing, and so the hot band became the Cherry Bombs, Rodney Krause's band and Roseanne Cassie's band. And that's where I met Ben Skill. And so I, I, all these people are in there in the little, little paragraphs about them. So I just, I've really paid attention all along the way and realized what being around a person and taking that person serious and take everything you do serious and be able to have no said to you a lot and not let it hurt, hurt your feeling, you know. We're talking with record producer Tony Brown. The book title, your forthcoming book, Elvis Straight to Jesus, Straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. Great title. Right, straight being to, you know, because when I first, I told Melissa, my manager, I hired her to do, and her husband to do my website. And as we were doing my website, she said, man, you should write a book. And I said, I've been through this. I went to New York to meet with all the publishers just before Keith Richards' book came out and Stephen Tyler's and Eric Clapton's. And they said, man, your story is really interesting, but nobody knows who you are. So if you're doing this to make money, don't do it. Do it only because you can't help yourself. And it's going to take you about five or six years. He said, all these books, Clapton, Stephen Tyler, probably the only one that's going to really sell is Keith. And he's right. I bought all those books. The only one I've read is Keith. I wanted to see how, if he and Mick did really hate each other. <laughs> And I wanted to see if Stephen Holler had any naked girls in his in his book. He had no pictures. So I told Melissa, I told Melissa, I said, if I did a a book, it would not be an autobiography. I'd tell my story in pictures because all through the years, since I was a kid, I got pictures, photographs from my family in church. 
Then I got pictures of me on tour with Elvis sent to me by fans. And then at the record business, I was in for 25 or 30 years, I've got pictures from every number one party, every gold record party, with every major star in the business and every major record executive. We could use that. We got the, we got the content. I didn't realize you got to get permission from all the photographers. <laughs> and that took a long time, but I'm telling my story in pictures. And so you can see me get a little bit older and you get to see uh, Vince and Reba and you get to see uh, Steve turn from James Dean into, he looks like an old hippie from down in the meatpacking district in New York. Or something. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you get to see my story in in pictures and then I I set one person in a chair, then I write, like about Bowen, I write, he was a scary person. You know, one time, when he he met with me to hire me, he hired me to play organ B3 on a Hank Jr. session when Hank was at his biggest. And my assistant said, that's Jimmy Bowen wants you to come play tonight on Hank Jr. I went, oh my God, I don't play B3. It's a keyboard like a piano, but it's, it's a really a gift the way you play it. It's like an art form, you know? He said, well, go do it. If he fires you, you know, the union requires you to cancel a, a session in seven days or you get you get paid anyway. You know, so why don't you go? So I went, and I get there, and I'm going, boy, I just stepped in it big time. I want to embarrass myself. And they said, hey, Bowen's upstairs. He wants to see you. So I go up there. I've never met man. I never met the man. He's sitting there in that chair leaning back with his sunglasses on, those little strings, he, the ones you hang around your neck, you know. He said, well, hello, Mr. Brown. He said, uh, I've been watching you over there at RCA signing them big acts and that record you did with Nora Wilson. You got promise. I could make you a great producer. I said, well, good. He said, I'm, I'm taking over MCA in March of 84. And uh, I think I might want you to be my, my A&R guy. Count me in, man. So I leave there, and I call my attorney, and I said, hey, Bill, I just talked to Bo, and he, he wants to hire me, he says. I said, but I'm probably one of ten. So my attorney chased it and got it, and he said, you got the gig, man. And he's promised you to co-produce three records right up front, one being Jimmy Buffett. So for the next four months, all around Nashville, hey, man, Bowen's taking over. You know that? I said, I heard that. Guess who he's hiring for his A&R guy? I said, who? They said, Jerry Crutchfield, because Jerry produced Lee Greenwood and Tanya Tucker for MCA. And I said, well, that makes total sense, because he's like a kind of a a producer with a track record. I called Bill back up, and I'd say, man, do I have the job? He says, don't say a word. Just be quiet. So make make a long story short, about a week before the announcement was supposed to be made, I'm walking out the back of RCA. Here comes this white Fleetwood Cadillac with the black windows and a driver. I know it's Bowen. He stops right in front of me, and the window goes, mm, and he said, you still in? I said, yeah. He said, good. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyway, from that moment on, I just my life has been like a screenplay. And so this, I wanted this book to sort of come off that way. And so when I'm taking pictures, everybody has sat in the chair except Bowen. I had to fly out and sit in on his couch in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I said, I said, you know what, Bowen? I need to sit on your couch because I wouldn't even have a book without you. And I just loved the way all the things that happened making this book. I was getting really kind of afraid to call people up and say, would you mind coming sitting in this chair at my house? But everybody was happy to do it. I mean, Jerry Bradley he was the one, you know, he was Owen Bradley's son, and he's the one that did the Outlaws album that changed country music forever. I mean, that's the first platinum album in country music. And so nobody sees him. He never goes out. And he, he came to my house, and I told people that. They said, Jerry Bradley came to your house? And as he comes in, he goes, so I guess everybody that's come in here has told you what's happening now, and then others have told you how it all started I'm going to tell you what happened in between. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, I've got just great memories of making, putting this book together, and it's made me look back on my life in a different way. I mean, I really, I really have been really lucky, you know, and luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? <laughs> and so that's the way it's been for me. It's just, I'm so glad that my years 
sitting in the MCA chair as a producer was 89 to 97 because the class of 89 was Garth, Clint, Vince, Allen, Brooks and Dunn. When Reba really broke, that was the class of 89, you know, and records, every record I produced, so platinum or three million, I thought I was a genius. And now, you know, you look across country music and I mean, on all the labels combined, there's maybe six acts that are selling platinum. It's just really a strange place. Then you got Chris Stapleton, who radio won't play, and he still sells more than anybody else. It's just amazing. And I'm, I am, I'm just astonished. But I think, man, how lucky was I to be sitting in my chair from 89 to 97, the gilded age, the golden years. We're talking with record producer Tony Brown, one of the artists you've mentioned a few times, very unique artist, Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett, yeah. And, you know, I had heard about him. One of my best friends, Don Light, used to book gospel music. He was the big agent for gospel music acts. And so one day I was in his office and he said, hey, come in here. I'm going to play somebody I found. And he played me Jimmy Buffett. He played me uh, Come Monday. And then... I was, you know, I, I didn't get it because I didn't know much about pop music and I didn't know much about Jimmy Buffett. So he told me about it. Jimmy had a fan base that was incredible down there in the in the South, you know, in the Gulf region. And then he played me, Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw? And I was going, man, this is this is really bizarre because that was all against everything I was raised in, you know, evangelical right-wing fanatics, you know. And uh, I got to know him just because of Don Light. And then when I got with Bowen, Buffett had he was on he'd been on MCA back in the early days. He was ABC, which was bought by MCA. Then he'd been produced by Norbert Putnam in town during the Margaritaville and Cheeseburgers in Paradise and all that stuff. And he was on the LA label, and they were getting bored. They wanted some multi-platinum pop acts, right? And Buffett's a lifestyle artist. So Bowen, being the kind of character he is, he, he was observing this. So he called Bowen up, I mean, called Howard Kaufman up and Irving, because Irving Azoff was running MCA at the time when I came. And Irving managed, or his, his company, Frontline, managed Buffett. So Bowen calls Buffett and Howard Kaufman and Irving and says, bring him, you know, what he does is kind of in between folk and country, but he's a pop artist. He's not a cowboy. Yeah. Let me do a couple records on him out of here, and maybe we'll have a country number one record, and you know it'll be a little fun for him, and he'll get him back on the road map again. So he comes over, and the first thing we cut is Riddles in the Sand, which had uh, the first single, Who's the Blonde Stranger. It didn't really connect, but it made it made an impact. He got a lot of he started getting bigger ticket sales and everything, and then we did the last Mango in Paris. Because Buffett was co-writing all that stuff with, uh, uh, what's his name, Will... Will Jennings. Will Jennings, you know, and Will had written a lot of great country songs in the in the past. And so, to me, the plus about that, I got to know Will Jennings really well, because they wrote both those albums together. And while they were doing The Last Mango, I was on a boat with Will that Buffett had rented for them to hang out on. And Will said, hey... He had just written that Ark of the Diver album for Steve Winwood, which I really loved. He said, hey, I just wrote a new song for Steve Winwood. What, tell me what you think about it. And he played me Higher Love, the demo. And I went, oh, my God, it sounds like a big hit to me. He said, you think so? I said, hell yeah. <laughs> and then after that, he, knew he wrote that uh, Up Where We Belong with Cocker and Jennifer Warren. Then he wrote the Titanic thing with Celine. So just being around that caliber of writer, I've noticed... Like Buffett, when you go see Buffett, I went to see Buffett when he had a the launch of his one of his books in New York. So me and Bowen go up there, and we're walking up the stairs behind Walter Cronkite, Caroline Kennedy, Ed. What's that? Uh, the black guy that that Buffett loved so much that passed away. He used to do sixty minutes. Uh, Ed Bradley. Yes, and I was going, man. I mean, Reba and George Strait wouldn't have these people coming out for them and to them he's an author so you know Buffett opened my eyes he has the best career there is he doesn't have to 
pander to the, the gatekeepers at radio, even though Margaritaville is one of the biggest standards of all times. You know, off of one hit, he's got a career. <laughs> I don't know. Buffett was good for me to study about studying the music business, and Bowen was too, because Bowen would tell me stories about Sinatra and 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 all that kind of stuff, and then told me about Hank Jr. Nobody took Hank Jr. serious, and he decided to take him serious. And I don't know if you remember, but Hank won, you know, he was selling three and four million back when nobody was selling that much, and he was winning Entertainer of the Year every year. And uh, all those records he, that Bowie made on him, you know, was just uh, Country Boy Can Survive, and oh, God, they were just awesome. You know, I wanted to know who produced those records. It wasn't him. Then I would just drill him about, how did you do this and how did you do that? And uh, I just learned that a producer, he said, step in when needed. Otherwise, the artists, if they they have a vision of themselves, like Reba really does, and so does George, you just follow them and step in when needed. But sometimes you actually got to work. He said, with Hank Jr., I had to work. Because he couldn't get his vocals, and I had to spend days getting his vocals. And he said, uh, and I didn't want a drummer that played like everybody else. So he hired Buffett's drummer. I can't think of the guy's name now, but uh, but you know, just the casting of the band for Hank Jr. was really important. So I learned that from Bowen too. I just did Cindy Lauper last album, Detour, and when she came in, she interviewed everybody in town to cut it and she picked me and I said don't tell me you picked me because I played with Elvis because that seemed to define my career she said no it was your hair <laughs> I said damn and I, she said no it's because you seem because I would argue about like the, she wanted to cut into the world and I said the best version of that is Skeeter Davis and I didn't realize Herman Hermans had cut it and she, the only version she knew was Herman Hermans and so, Seymour Stein was with her. He like, I mean, Seymour Stein's like having Elvis in front of you. He's their Elvis of executives. I mean, Ahmed Erdogan, Seymour Stein, Clive Davis, David Geffen, Mo Austin. I, I mean, I hold them in such high esteem. And so he said, Cindy, he's right. <laughs> and so I forgot about Herman's Hermans. Then I remembered the ver- that version. But so we get to the studio, and I realized I had to be on my A game because, man, she had done her her work, you know. And uh, she did a Marty Robbins song I never heard. So I I love stepping out on a limb out of my comfort zone and only because I think Bowen taught me how to do that. You know, he really did. I, I, didn't, I don't think working with Reba or George taught me how to do it. And I think the job with Reba and George was I didn't blow it up. I didn't blow it up. You know, I actually got, George got bigger when he hired me. But that movie did that for him. The movie was a steal, but the album was a uh, success and made him even a bigger star. And then Reba had want, always wanted to cut fancy, and Bowen wouldn't do it on her because it's about a prostitute. I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I just lo- I just loved Bobby Gentry's record of it because all the dynamics in it, and I wanted to see if I could make it sound like that, and we did. So, you know, those things, I would have never had the nerve to do that if, without being trained by Bowen. So that's what Bowen did for me. You know, I think he finally just got, he's so rich, he went to Scottsdale and he plays golf all the time. And uh, and now I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm the old guard and all these young dudes are producing all these records. And I was glad that Cindy picked me to do this, do this record because doing a cover record like that, she was doing 40s, 50s, and 60s. Have you, have you heard the album? Yes, I have. And I loved it. Yes, I, I loved it too, you know. And... I said, you know what I love about doing this, Cindy? I said, this record is not to be made for radio. It's to be made for the critics to either say we were both slackers or it was a mediocre version of the original versions. So it's just got to be really good. And I love that challenge. And so it, it was fun, man. It was it was like fun uh, cutting like Cowboy Sweetheart. I brought in Brian Sutton to play that flat top guitar which nobody plays that way anymore that western swing stuff and then uh jeff the guy that plays with the time jumpers to play the accordion and then i had never worked with jewel and jewel did yodel for me she said i can't believe the only time i get to work with you is i have to yodel at 10 o'clock in the morning (laughs) but you know just 
going through that record was kind of fun. I mean, I, our version of End of the World, I, I think the, the record company didn't know what to do with that. I think they could have got some airplay out of that record. And they, they just didn't know how to play the Nashville game, you know. But I'm proud of that record. I, I put it on for actually listening enjoyment just because it's just cool, you know. And doing that uh, thing with Allison Krauss, the Heart Candy Christmas, that was fun to do that. And then I played piano with Willie because I don't play anymore, you know, and and she kept saying the piano player's playing too much. So I went to Steve Nathan, who was my go-to piano player. And I said, man, you're playing too much, Steve. You need to back just back off. He said, hey, man, I'm not doing anything. And so I said, I said, you know, do this. Floyd Kramer used to play only with his right hand on Patsy Cline, not even any left hand. And so I said, y'all start the song. It was uh, easy. I said, what it was, what did we do? I can't remember. No, the nightlife, the nightlife. And so I'm playing, so Cindy said, okay, you're playing the piano. I said, no, I don't play on record. I don't play anymore. She says, he just start, started again right now. And man, I, when the count off came in my, in my headphones, I thought I was going to die. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was never a great session player because I was traumatized by that. You know, a player chokes on your session, he blows your session. And you just remember that. And all the records I played on, like, like with Elvis and Amy Lou, we would rehearse those things for days before we would cut them, you know. But in Nashville, they play a demo, and then you play it. And a lot of those takes are the first take, you know, the first take. Our, our studio musicians are just unbelievable. So I know you didn't ask me to tell you that, but I just thought I'd tell you. I thought I'd just share it with you. <laughs> well, what do you do when you meet somebody and they're in awe of you? God, I don't ever think anybody's in awe of me. I mean, I can't imagine that. I, the only people that I know are in awe of me is when I go to a concert to see Reba or to see an artist. I'm just backstage or out front. And people that want to be in the business, they, they may be good. They may be a local yokel from a club. They go, you're Tony Brown. I go, yeah. Oh, man. And then you can tell that they really are in awe. And it, it, it's humbling to tell you the truth because, I mean, when I met Seymour Stein, that's, I was pissing down my leg, man. I mean, so I still, I still have that in me. I mean, I still have that in me. If I ever get a chance to meet Celine Dion, and I know that's probably not cool for young kids, but I just think she's, I think she's better than Streisand. And I would just love to meet her and not sweat. I hope my hands wouldn't sweat, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I I think the only time I've ever had somebody I worked with that was in awe of me was early in my days at MCA when I would do, like, spec stuff on artists that I thought we should listen to. And I think me being there was a detriment as opposed to not being there because they would be running, over, running it down while I was out of the room. And the engineer would say, man, they just killed it. And then... I'd walk in the room, sit down, and say, let's do it. And they'd choke. Mm. And the engineer, engineer would say, they're just intimidated by you. And I was going, oh, they're not either. He said, yeah, I think so. So I've never seen that happen but a couple of times. But I've seen the thing where I could tell that they were in awe of me when it's like somebody in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and, and I'm, I'm out there to see Trisha would play, and this is the person that plays a Holiday Inn Club that does covers and and you know like because when I met Seymour Stein I wasn't expecting him to come over to my house with Cindy and I figured I I wouldn't have a problem meeting Cindy because he's such a cartoon and I can deal with that kind of stuff but uh, Seymour Stein I mean I never thought in me and you're like I need to meet Seymour Stein and I never met Alan Erdogan he was in a room one time in Nashville during CMA week and he was on a cane it was right before he I think he fell off a stage at the Stones concert or something, didn't he? Something like that. But his wife is a real socialite, and she's like, she looks like the queen of England. And she walks, she was walking with him, and so I saw him, and I just wanted to go touch him so maybe I could, like, get a little juice from him or something. And then she put her arms up, and I didn't get to speak to him. And I, I just watched him walk away and went, man, that was Ahmed Erdogan. And I just love that feeling. I still love the fact that I can get in awe of of people, you know, I just, I, it's, because that's what got me in the business. I never got into business. It's more fun trying to make it than trying to sustain it once you've made it. I mean, that's the deal. You know, once you 
you're trying to make it even i mean some of the things i did in the beginning never like steve earl and lyle levitt never made me any money but reba and george and winona and vince trisha made me a lot of money and but i kind of figured they would but i had i believed so much in steve earl and but you know what paul i think steve earl and the lyle levitt set the palette for me that I was a person who liked music, and and I think I was a musician and not a suit, you know. And and they could come talk to me, and uh, I saw it. I saw it on their level. I remember when I was doing Lionel Richie and Te- and, and uh, Willie on Tuskegee record. Have you heard that record? Yeah, That's a killer record, man. Anyway, so we're cutting, and so Willie's not. We're we're filming everything. We're cutting everything live. So Willie is not into the microphone. And we know we've got to get him because he, he drove in just for the session. So Lionel said, hey, Tony, tell Willie to get into the microphone so we can get this. I said, you you tell him. <laughs> he, he said, you tell him. You're the producer. I said, I don't know him. He said, but you're the producer. You go tell him. So I, I went in there and I was, I, I was freaking out. So I said, hey, Willie, hey, man, can, can you just get closer into the microphone because we're going to try to get this while you're here, at least some footage of you doing it, even if we have to sing it later. He said, man, I just don't know this song that well. And so I said, if you'll just get close enough to sing it, your style of singing, these guys, Tom Bukovac and Matt Rollins, they never get to play on your records because you cut them down in Austin with Buddy Cannon, and it will just light this room up. And he looked at me and says, kind of smiled and chuckled and says, all right. And the next take was the take. It was amazing. But I, I was, I was just in. I just loved walking in there, and feeling scared to know that I respect Willie Nelson so much that that it scared me. And then then it worked. I felt, man, can't stop, can't can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I don't know. I I've been. I love every moment being in A and R, whether you produce or not is the best job because you get to you express your taste, you know? And uh, as a musician, because I was I was a adequate piano player. I played with Elvis, I played with Emmy Lou, and I played with Roseanne Cash. But those songs, I had studied them for days and years before I ever had to play them. And, and, and pretty much those were guitar-driven artists, you know, like Elvis, James Burton was the guy that really drove the, the car there. And then it was uh, Emmy Lou, it was Albert, Albert Lee or... James Burton that drove it there too, and then with the cherry bombs, Vince Kill. So I just had to bang. So I, I knew my limits. I knew my limits, and that's not saying that that I cut myself short. I just knew what I could do. But I knew I had taste, you know. And uh, I let Johnny Gimble go when I started working with George Strait. And Bowen had always used Johnny Gimble because he used to play with Bob Wills. And uh, when Bowen heard I had done that on Pure Country, he said. Why did you do that? I said he plays out of tune, <laughs> and, and 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 so I said Stuart Duncan is the best bluegrass fiddle player in the United States, and so George never mentioned it because Stuart knew how to play. There's Texas fiddle, there's Kentucky fiddle, there's all these different kinds of fiddles, you know. He knows how to, he knew how to go right there. But flash forward a couple of years later during CMA week, Johnny Gimble had just been put in the Hall of Fame in Texas. Texas Music Hall of Fame for being the Western swing fiddle player for Bob Wills. And I saw him coming down the hall with his wife, and he said, there's the guy that fired me off the George Strait records. <laughs> and I went, oh, God, I feel so bad. <laughs> he said, I'm just kidding with you, buddy. But anyway, I was just going, God, I did that for the, I did it for the right reasons. I just, I wanted my records to sound a little better than Bowen's. I, I, the challenge was to make better records than Bowen made on Strait, and I don't think I did. I just made good ones. I mean, I made some really great records on George Strait that I'm really, really proud of. And I kept the I kept the thing going. You know, Bowen had cut 23 number. I mean, they'd been 23 number ones up to that point. And I took the next 37 up to 60 and cut the last number one he did, and that was my job, and I did it, and I did it well. So I'm. I think George is probably my best body of work I've done. If you were to go back and say, what's your best body of work? I would say it would be George because it stayed pretty authentic and I didn't 
contrive anything. He wouldn't have let me anyway, but I didn't want to. Well, if anyone wants information, they can visit the website. It's TonyBrownEnterprises.com. And again, the book is called Elvis Straight to Jesus. And I'm going to kind of leave things open-ended. Okay. And I hope we get a chance to talk again one day. But what would you say to our listeners? I would say, I mean, if, if they're wanting to be in the music industry, in the our music business, <laughs> it's the great business to be in if you have the gift, you know, and a gift of either being a record promotion man or running a label. But if if you like being around musicians and songwriters, it's a very creative kind of little culture. And me being a musician who came to town to be a musician and ended up being a record executive, I ended up in the job that I should have ended up in, which is A&R. And I became president eventually, which I would have never imagined I'd be the president of a record company in Nashville. But the CEO above me, Bruce Hinton, he was the he was the bottom line guy. I was the face of the music at the label. So I came here as a musician, ended up being with a record executive, but I ended up in the department where I kind of extended my. I lived through the musicians that I hired. You know, I, I would. There were certain piano players that played certain styles, and I knew I could book Pig Robbins for this style, Matt Robbins for this style, John Jarvis for this, Steve Nathan if I wanted Muscle Shoals, Reese Winans if I wanted Austin, Texas. And and I, I got to live through the musicians, so my my career has been a dream career, and it's, it's been, I've been blessed by God. God really blessed me with putting me in the position that I've been in, and then Someday I want to go back and cut a gospel record on uh, somebody. Maybe I don't. Southern gospel doesn't exist anymore. But you know, Reba just got it, won a Grammy for a gospel record, and I talked her into doing that, to cutting that record because of all the country artists, not many could really or want to cut a country record. And she's really a spiritual person. She's a Christian, and she cut it. And then when she won, I texted her because I was here. I was watching the Grammys. I said, congratulations on your Grammy, Reba. And she said, because the only other Grammy she had won was she won for Best Performance on a country record. It was between her and Linda Davis, uh, Does He Love You? But this was for the album. And I, she said, you talked me into it. Thank you. It's just I know it's just a gospel record, but it is a Grammy. And I said, Reba, don't forget, the only Grammy Elvis ever won was for his gospel record, How Great Thou Art. And she and she said, I never knew that. I said, that's right. The only Grammy he won was for his gospel record. And he had no problem with that, because that was really was what he was aiming for anyway. So I just say, if you have a desire to be in this business, study, do your homework, just look at all the different parts of the industry. Because being in production, you know, doing the videos, doing the album covers, or even marketing, being a promotion guy, you get to go work with this thing you love, which is music. Because music is its own kind of world, and it, 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 it attracts certain kinds of people, you know. And like myself, I was a musician who ended up being a record executive, but I still think like a musician. And, and so uh, I just encourage you, if this is what you want to do, do it. It's a fun place to be, and it's a, it's a great... It's a great culture to be in because it's creative people and they have hearts and souls and uh and by the way paul not to blow smoke up your butt but interviews is a gift it's an art form too and about out of every 10 interviews i get a couple good guys that know how to do it and you know how to do it thank you no you do and i've I've talked to rolling stone i've talked to everybody bbc and some people just don't know how to do it some do and you make me feel really comfortable, and as opposed to I was sitting here wondering how many times I was going to stumble, and you were going to say, "Hey, uh, do this," <laughs> and you didn't not once, and so you you kept you kept me thinking, and I appreciate you let me do this, and everybody go order pre-order my book because I need to in order to be on the New York bestseller list, I have to sell so many 
by the first week. And it's not that many. So, uh, And I think you'll like the book. And go to my website because on my website, I actually got a – somebody sent me a shot, a video of me playing my solo when Elvis introduced me. And I wouldn't take anything for it, so I put it on my website. And uh, it's on there, so check it out. And, Paul, thank you so much. My pleasure, Mr. Brown. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Until next time. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.